My name is Volker Kruger. Thank you for joining us here on Van Verdenderby Legal News, Gotteberg Stereo. Today we will explain what the wills week entails and also answer a couple of questions on wills and estates and the administration of deceased estates. And uh, then Elmarie Richter will explain to us what the obligation to report sexual offenses and also other crimes in general entails. So please stay tuned for, tuned for, for those um, two interesting discussions. And please uh, send us your questions and your comments to info at vvd.co.za. Hello everyone, my name is Esmeri McCalligan and today I have the privilege of having a little chat with Volker Kruger from um, our firm who heads our estates department to talk a bit about National Wills Week that's coming up as well as wills in general. So Volker, before we get to a general discussion on wills, just tell us a bit about what is National Wills Week. It's a week uh, that is sponsored every year by the LPC, the Legal Practice Council, during which People can get their rules drafted free of charge by participating attorneys' firms. So you can check on the website of the LPC which firms are indeed participating and then contact them and make an appointment for that week. And then they will assist you with drafting a simple will and your estate planning, etc. I think it's a very good initiative because then anybody, regardless of who you are, can get a will drafted for free. Yes, and it's certainly important to have a will if you don't have a will then the interstate law of succession applies and uh, stipulates who must inherit uh, what in terms of uh, the assets in your estate after you've passed away. And that will in most cases not be in line with what you would prefer should happen. So it's very important, I think, for everybody, uh, young and old, to have a will and in that will prescribe what should happen after you've passed away. Certainly. Now, Volker, um, I've seen that a lot of people um, have a few interesting questions about wills. Now, one of the questions that people tend to have is, do I have to register my will somewhere for it to be valid? No. So there's no central registry for wills, like, for example, there is for title deeds in respect of a movable property, which are registered at the deeds office. So in the case of wills, you simply have to comply with the formality requirements of the Wills Act, in the sense that uh, the document must be signed by you in the presence of two witnesses uh, who must also then sign the will in uh, your presence, etc. That's the basic uh, requirement that has to be met. There are some exceptions and some alternatives to, to also use to have a, a valid will, but that's basically what you have to do to ensure that there's an enforceable document that can then be used after you've passed away. And only after your death will it then be lodged at the master's office. So then it goes to the government and then there's a registry of all the wills that are uh, uh, lodged there after you've passed away. But before that, there is no central place where the wills are stored. So most people, for example, use your attorney, then you would sign your will at the attorney's office and they would then keep it in safe custody and in a fireproof uh, safe. Uh, most attorneys don't charge for that, in my experience. So then you know it's safe there and you obviously get a copy. And it's obviously also important to tell your loved ones where your will is, so that they know where to go after you've passed away. Interesting. Now, on that point of um, having two witnesses sign your will, um, 
Can I, for example, write my will out on a piece of paper and bequeath everything to my um, wife and son, for example, and have them sign as witnesses and I put it in my drawer um, at home? Would that be valid? Witnesses are disqualified from inheriting in terms of the will. So you shouldn't use your um, spouse or whoever. You also make a beneficiary in the will as a witness. So that's very important mm -hmm. to keep in mind. There's an exception. They can still inherit to the same extent that they would have inherited in terms of the interstate law of succession. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to have to work with those exceptions or whatever. So rather make sure that you use independent witnesses. Anybody 14 years or older can actually sign as a witness. Um, and the person obviously doesn't have to understand the contents of the will as such. You basically, as a witness, just confirm the fact that the person, the state or the testatrix, signed in your presence. So that's all you're doing. So yeah, don't uh, uh, rather um, use any family member that would also be beneficiary as a witness. But in any event, I wouldn't suggest that you draft your own will. Make sure that you get an expert to do it properly uh, so that it can be executed because People often think it's simple. I just stipulate we must get what? Why do I have to use an attorney or someone else, a professional person to help me with the drafting work? But unfortunately, there are a lot of court cases that stem from such self-made rules because there are contradictions. So it's not clear what intention is or the formatic requirements have not been met. So rather make use of this rules week and get it drafted free of charge. Even if you do it outside the rules week, it's not going to cost you a lot of money. Uh, to have a will drafted and it can certainly prevent a lot of headaches. For sure. Now, regarding um, executing your wishes after your death, um, who can be an executor? Can you appoint anybody as an executor? Can an executor also inherit from you? Yes. So you can, for example, appoint your surviving spouse as the executor or executrix and she can then also be a beneficiary of the will. Uh, so pros and cons, some people like to appoint family members for them to then seek professional help like an attorney or whoever to assist with the winding up process because uh, the uh, surviving spouse would normally not know how to attend to all the requirements of the master and the SARS uh, and the government etc. to make sure that the estate is winded up uh, properly. So that is one option. Uh, some people prefer appointing an independent person like a professional person who has the necessary experience uh, to do the job properly and who can also make sure that there are no disputes between the family members and the beneficiaries, etc. So in my experience, uh, an independent executor can often add a lot of value by making sure that the emotions are put aside and the law is followed and everybody objectively accepts what needs to happen in terms of the will, etc. So, uh, in my experience, that first meeting with the beneficiaries after someone has passed away is absolutely crucial. And if that is an experienced person that deals with that first meeting and not a family member, an outsider uh, who is professional and who has an experience expertise, then you can prevent a lot of disputes, a lot of misunderstandings also. Sometimes it's not ill intentions or whatever, malafide um, family members necessary who cause the problems. It's often misunderstandings uh, and, and also the perception that an executor who is also a beneficiary will then wind up the estate to his benefit or her benefit, etc., and abuse that position of power that an executor actually has. So in that sense, it's often, I think, uh, um, 
sensible to rather use an independent executor, especially if there's more than one beneficiary. If the surviving spouse inherits everything in any event, then I guess it's a, it's a simpler process and less uh, risk that there might be disputes. But if there are various beneficiaries, especially surviving spouse and children, then it's normally, I think, better to look at an independent executor. Mm, I agree with you. Um, from a litigation perspective, I know there's many, many, many uh, court cases about family members fighting about who gets what. And, and it often happens that children and parents are now fighting with each other, which is which is never a desirable situation for anybody. I've had, I can maybe just mention, I've had numerous clients in my office who said to me, my children will never fight. Don't worry, they get along well, we are close, family, etc. And then when dad is no longer there, mm -hmm. um, or mom is no longer there, or both are no longer there, situation. Different story. This <laughs> is a deep, completely different uh, setup. And unfortunately, in many cases, the in laws also get involved. I see that a lot. And that creates a lot of tension. And then there are disputes. So, yeah, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. It happens in many Better cases. Better to as have an know. independent person, yes. Now, another question that a lot of people wonder about um, when it comes to um, dividing their assets after after the death is, and the question that people tend to ask is, will the government take everything? And I and I assume that refers to perhaps a state duty. So maybe it's wise that we just give a brief overview of. What is a state duty? Will it be payable? Are there exceptions? How does it work? Well, the good news is that everything that the surviving spouse inherits is exempted from a state duty and also capital gains tax. So that problem you will not have after the death of the first dying spouse. Um, there's a general exemption that covers the surviving spouse. So that's good news. After the surviving spouse, however, has passed away, then as a general rule, Everything in the state of the surviving spouse is indeed uh, taxable in terms of a state duty and uh, capital gains tax. However, in terms of a state duty, there is a, a primary rebate of uh, 7 million rand that can be deducted from the estate at this stage. That's the amount. Might change in the future. Uh, the estate of the surviving spouse in terms of a state duty, if the surviving spouse inherited everything from the first dying estate. So the 3,5 million rand, which is the a general primary rebate and every estate is transferred from the first dying estate to the survivor's estate and then you've got a 7 million rand uh, deduction that you have available there and then from there over 7 million rand is taxed at 20% at this stage and over well, up to 30 million rand over 30 million it's uh, then 25% so that's in terms of a state duty so yeah unfortunately that uh, must then be paid to the government in terms of a state uh, uh, duty. There's also capital gains tax payable in uh, some cases. There's also a VAT in, uh, payable in some cases. If, uh, for example, the deceased was a farmer who was registered for VAT, then you would also have to declare VAT on all the assets that are part of the VAT enterprise of the deceased, etc. So, yeah, unfortunately, the government does take its share. Many people will argue not its fair share, but they take their share of, uh, of the estate in terms of taxes. But uh, fortunately, that is it. So uh, it's not correct to say that the government takes um, your assets if you pass away without a will or whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. Some people seem to have that uh, perception. Um, even if you don't have a will, then the interstate law of succession will apply, as I mentioned earlier, uh, which stipulates who must then inherit what. For example, if you pass away without a will and you have a surviving spouse and children, 
then they would be entitled to inherit an equal share. So in terms of that Interstate Law of Succession Act, provide that the surviving spouse is entitled at this stage to a minimum of 250,000 rand, for example. Or if you pass away with a surviving spouse only, then she would be the sole beneficiary if uh, the wife is a surviving spouse. With the children only, then it would go to the children. If there are no children, no surviving spouse, it goes to the parents. And thereafter, to brothers and sisters, uh, siblings, etc. So there is an act that prescribes who must get what if you pass away without a will, so it doesn't just go to the government. Okay. However, another case where it does go to the government or is under the control of the government, very important maybe to mention, is if there are minor children and there are, for example, cash inheritances, that those minor children are entitled to. Then the law says if you don't have a will that, for example, caters for trust, then that money is paid to the guardian's fund of the government to protect minor children up to the age of 18. You become a major at the age of 18 in South Africa. So um, that guardian fund is then in control of the funds and whoever looks after the children must then apply to the guardian's fund for the release of those funds to make them available to look after the children, which is certainly not the ideal scenario. Yes. So what we always advise our clients is if you have minor children or grandchildren that you want to benefit from your state, you should cater for trust and appoint trustees who can then make the money available to the children as and when they need it. And then you can also link another age to that trust because you are a major, as I mentioned earlier, with 18 years of age, but many people feel with 18 you may be not yet responsible enough, you're going to blow the money on cars and girlfriends and overseas trips or whatever instead of studying. Yes. So um, many people, my experience, feel that 25 years, some even say 30 years, is maybe a better age, then the children start getting a bit more responsible. So you can then also stipulate in your will what the age uh, should be. So the idea is not to punish the children against the punish them, just basically to protect them against themselves, to make yes. sure that they rather act responsibly. So so the trustees can still make the money available to the children as and when they need it for whatever, maintenance, studies, etc. But they then have the final say to make sure that the money is not wasted. And this is why it's so important to have an attorney assist you with drafting your will, because if you write your will out on a little piece of paper or you don't have a will, then you wouldn't know about this um, situation where if your minor children were to inherit cash, it would go to the guardian's fund at the very least up until the age of 18. So this is why it's so important to to have a professional assist you with drafting your will. I agree. Yes. So uh, that is it from my side. I think it's a very interesting um, information to take with you and remember and consider when when you want to draft a will and i would really encourage everybody to make use of the opportunity of national wills week every year to have your will drafted or even if you have an existing will remember to review that will every few years because your circumstances might change yeah maybe i can just add so the wills week also includes that review of your will it doesn't necessarily have to be a new will so if you have a, a will already, you can also take that to your attorney who's participating and uh, have that uh, will reviewed. This year, maybe I can just also mention that it's the 12th till the 16th of September. So those are the important dates to keep in mind. So 12 to uh, 16 uh, September 2022, you can uh, participate in the uh, Wills Week and have your will drafted free of charge. Or reviewed. Or reviewed. Yes. Thank you, Fulke. All right. Thanks for joining us, uh, Elmerie Richter, again. 
background is um, what uh, is reported in the news on uh, what happened uh, some time ago at the farm of President Sir Ramaphosa and the allegations that he failed to report the robbery that happened there on his farm. And uh, the allegation is that he was guilty of an offence because of his failure to do so. Now, we certainly don't want to get into any detail in respect of uh, that specific matter, but maybe I can just ask you in general, is there an obligation of anyone on, on, on a person in, in, in the country to report a crime if he was the subject of that crime? Yes, there is that obligation on us to actually report the crime. When we are a victim, we have to report the crime. That's how we actually fight crime in our country, is by reporting. No one will know something happened to you if you did not report. And then another question arises: where, what if I'm a spectator? Now, what if I see a crime occurring? So you're I, not the victim? Yeah, you're you not the victim. Someone breaking into a car or whatever. Yeah. Now, then we don't necessarily have a legal duty to report. There's more of an expectation that we should report. But now we have to use our common sense, as I would like to call it. You know, if you see someone murdering someone else, you cannot keep quiet. Then maybe you, you can be seen as an accomplice. So you have to you have to weigh up the circumstances that you are in. But there's an expectation then that we do report crimes, not necessarily a legal duty. Other circumstances, maybe when you are a person in authority and something's happening in your company or whatever the case may be, there's a criminal offence like corruption or theft or that type of things. Treason is also commonly known, then we also have the duty to report. So when we say there's an expectation or there's a legal um, duty to report, it, it's not necessarily how I would like to call it like a black and a white, you know exactly always what to do. That's why I always advise rather go and report, the police will take it from there. Make sure that when you report that you are doing it in good faith as well. Obviously when you report a crime, um, when you are a spectator for example and you've done it in bad faith trying to get someone in trouble, that can most definitely get you in trouble as well. So we should make sure that we do things in good faith. We should report crimes that assists the, um, you know, SAPs and everyone who is actually fighting crime. Um, and then make sure that we should not just keep quiet for the sake of keeping quiet and not trying to get involved. Okay, but then there's another category, am I right? Sexual offences. Yes. There another set of rules apply. So what we what you just explained now is in respect of other crimes. Yes. But for sexual offences, other rules uh, should be followed. Definitely. Now, sexual offences. This is a clear cut case. If there's a sexual offence and you are aware of it, even just the mere possibility of or, or assumption that there is sexual offence, you must must report. That's set out in the Criminal um, Amendment Act, more commonly known as the Sexual Offences and Related Matters Act, as well as in the Children's Court Act, the Children's Act specifically also states, if there's a sexual offence, one must report. And then what the Act also says, and I think this is very important to take note of, is the Act says that if you think there's, a, you know, something's happening there and you go report you cannot be held liably civilly or criminally if you laid a charge or a complaint the act actually says you cannot be held liable because we all have a duty to report and i think it's very important that um people take note how serious this is um we must 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 <laughs> report sexual offenses because you know what um 
you are then fighting for the vulnerable people, especially when we look at the Children's Act and what they say about sexual offences. We must report so that we can actually help the kids, that we can give a voice for the kids, and most of all, that we can prosecute the offenders. Because we want, we want to take that people out of the public and make sure that the kids, for example, or women or whoever, are well taken care of. So if you have the suspicion that someone is sexually abusing a child and you report that to the police and that person is arrested and perhaps even charged and, and, and even if that person is then uh, found to be not guilty, he cannot sue you for no. defamation, etc. of character because of that protection that you have in terms of the act. Yes. So obviously that is to encourage all people to report any suspicions yes. on sexual offences, um, knowing that they won't be held liable for defamation and whatever other claims yeah. might be brought against them. That's a, the way of protecting the public. And the thing is, our legal duty here to report go as far as merely reporting. You don't have to worry what happens next. The police or the social workers involved, they will take the complaint further. You merely have to go and report. And with sexual um, offences or or assault, whatever the case may be, you can report it at the Department of Social Development. There's a number on their website that you can call. You can go to um, the police station and report it there, or you can approach a social worker working, for example, for family welfare, whatever the case may be. You can also report that sexual offences at their offices as well. They assist you completing a form and then they take it from there. So they really make the process as easy as possible for the public to actually go and report. And you know, there's a big obligation on people and members of public, but especially on, on teachers, um, people working at churches. That for example, a teacher realizing that a child is abused by parents or yes. step parents or whatever might be the case, there's also that obligation. There is that obligation. And like I said, the obligation is also on, on churches. And sometimes people find a church to be their safe place and they maybe admit to certain offenses. That person dealing with that matter does have a legal duty to report. So if there's this, a confession at church, etc. There's a legal duty the, the to report. Obligation to no report doubt is still there. Yes, it's the same, and, and the, some people frown when, when I say it, but it's the same with psychologists. You know, if you as a patient see a psychologist and you admit to an offence or sexual act that happened to you, or whatever the case may be, they have a duty to report it. Even if the, the conversations are what we would like to call privileged, they have a duty to report. Maybe just some final questions in that regard. What are sexual offences? Obviously, well, it's like rape. Um, sexual abuse of children, etc. Child pornography? Child pornography. Um, pornography in, in general, if, if the person obviously didn't consent to it or whatever. So, um, most common is sexual abuse, not necessarily always right, but sexual abuse. And then, um, is it exploitation? Is that the correct word I'm using? Um, that That's also a, a sexual offense. Um, even sometimes, in, we've done it in a course and it was very interesting where you can read um, manners in which people talk to one another and there's a sexual tone to it where you are actually like you are using the, the messages as a type of a bait. Even that can be seen as, as um, a sexual offence. So um, the, the definition is very broad and, and we have to look after one another and make sure everyone's well taken care of and therefore we have this duty to report. 
Okay, thank you. Nobody. That's all we have uh, time for today. Remember, our email address is info at vvd.co.za. Thanks for uh, listening. Uh, make sure that you tune in again next week, Wednesday, between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock, and then also on Friday evenings.